Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick note before we start, my folk horror novel Lost in the Garden is now out and available in all good bookshops. What if the village from Hot Fuzz started to behave like Annihilation's Area X? Three women have set off through the English countryside to track down a friend who has gone missing in the mysterious village of Almondby, the village they have been warned all through their childhood never to visit. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, don't go to Almondby. And now they too are going to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca said, eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, this is a dreamy and unsettling masterwork, one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Weselowski, Lost in the Garden is like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful, uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Dead Ink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. Welcome to Retrotube, the show where bright, glossy 60s espionage goes up against grainy, spooky 70s sci-fi and reaches a truce in the weird, wonderful world of 80s cartoons. Not this week, though, as this week I am continuing my three-episode reign of terror. As I'm keeping a tight stranglehold on the reins as long as Adam lets me, I'm keeping us firmly in the more bizarre echelons of 60s television. However, I'm changing the pace and setting from the bright, vivid, zany colour wheel of the 1966 Batman series and transporting us back to dear old Blighty, to the poshest part of swinging London, where monochrome is the new deluxe and where you'll find the greatest male-female crime-fighting comedy team since Adam Leslie and Heather Wainwright. When it comes to saving Britain from untold danger, duos don't come much more dynamic than John Steed and Emma Peel. That's right, folks. It's time for Series 4 of The Avengers! The Avengers is probably the most famous British spy show of them all, and ran from 1961 to 1969 over a whopping 161 episodes, initially following the adventures of Dr David Keel and John Steed, played by Ian Hendry and the lovely Patrick McNee, agents of an unnamed secret government department. From series two onward, Ian Hendry left to pursue a film career, and Patrick McNee was paired with a bevy of badass beauties, including Honor Blackman, Linda Thorson, and most famously, the delightful, delicious and the lovely Diana Rigg who played the woman with Emma Peel, Mrs Emma Peel, in series 4 and 5, taking the show from black and white to glorious colour with unbridled panache. Terrifyingly, it turns out that I've been a huge fan of the Peel era Avengers for the best part of 20 years. But Adam, how familiar are you with the show? Do you have any particular memories of watching it growing up? And how did you enjoy the episodes we saw today? Oh, well, so many questions. I know, I'm sorry. I didn't watch this growing up. I had a little spurt of watching it probably 10 or 15 years ago. 
probably, I think, mostly the colour episodes. I think I watched a, cu- a couple of the black and white ones, but I hadn't seen many of the black and white ones at all. I think I last watched them when my friend Shannon was over. She is our Willow the Wisp correspondent, Shannon oh, Fay. Yes. The like author, Shannon Fay. And she was over visiting, and this ties back into our uh, Prisoner episode, because... Mm. Uh, she made me watch The Prisoner, and I said, oh, if you like The Prisoner, you'll probably like this as well. So we watched one called, and I had to look it up, we watched Castle Diarth. Ah, yes, love that one. And we were both a bit underwhelmed, I have to admit. But it's hilarious! <laughs> well, I think, am I right in thinking the colour ones are kind of wackier and more out there? And yes. stranger? They are. And the black and white ones are maybe a bit more formulaic. So I'd been watching the, the weirder, wackier colour ones. And I, we, I must have been watching them on YouTube back when you could pretty much find anything on YouTube before the um, you know, the copyright holders got all copyright holdery. Yes, on, on I the, remember the good old ass. days. I had for some reason picked the, the Scottish Castle one, going, oh, this is so wacky and zany. Uh, uh, but it that didn't particularly turn out to be yeah it was a bit it's, it's it's a funny episode but it's not wacky and or zany so i think uh neither of us ever <laughs> watched the avengers again after that which is a shame and i think actually it's mainly it's one of those shows i should watch but i think it's mainly availability ironically it's been right in front of me for months on BritBox, but in order to keep the purity of this format, I haven't watched it. <laughs> and by the time we got around to watching it, it's gone off. It's gone off BritBox, so I haven't, I haven't had the chance. I know. I've had to invest via Amazon Actual video. Actual money. Actual real money. So um, you can watch it as much as you like now. Yes. And actually, I have been watching some. Oh, you little tinker. So skipping forward, skipping forward to the end questions, would you watch it again? I already have been. Check you out. Well, you could knock me down with an F. That's a P.G. Woodhouse quote for you there. <laughs> Gosh, I didn't realise he was so X-rated. <laughs> 18 Woodhouse. There's a cinema ratings joke for you. So, did I like it? I, it, I, th- so I quite liked it. Should we say that? Let's. I liked some episodes more than others, but I have much fonder memories of having watched the colour episodes and then being a bit more... What's the word? They're more fantastical, I think. And, and purposely so in, in the colour episodes. They are more dreamlike. Yes, I think that's what I liked about them. Because I think the, the black and white ones can be a little bit dry, maybe. Mm. The last one I was watching before we recorded was The Man-Eater of Surrey Green. And it seemed to be a lot of the two main characters just going around and interviewing people. So they go and talk to one character and uh, as an expert and they'll give them information so then they'll go to another character and they'll get information from that character. And there's a bit of running around and a bit of chasing, but an awful lot of two very posh people <laughs> going to interview more posh people. But that wasn't one of the episodes, so I won't go into that. Well, that wasn't one of the uh, episodes that was set as homework. That was just an extracurricular episode. Yes, that's true. Uh, so the two episodes we did watch were Death at Bargain Prices and The House That Jack Built. Yes. And um, I accidentally chose Death at Bargain Prices because I'm a bit stupid and forgot what the titles of things were. Um, um, <laughs> They're quite similar. The episode that I... I meant for us to watch was... Um, Dial a Deadly Number. Dial a Deadly Number. That's the chap. Um, which which is, you know, it begins with a D. So, of course, I was going to get confused. Um, 
because and it, and it involves numbers and figures and stuff like exactly prices, prices numbers, numbers yeah. it's all the same thing i don't even i don't even know uh i just know that when anybody mentions numbers i, I kind of know about in my head so uh we i i wanted us to watch that one because peter bowles is in it and you know here at RetroTube, we have particular fondness for Peter Bowles. He's a good guy. We do. He's a good lad. He is. And a dapper chap. Yes, we miss him a lot. We do, yes. He's, he, he's passed away between now and our previous visit to Peter Bowles' land, which is obviously think, a terrible shame. Yes. I had recently watched the first episode of Only When I Laugh, and it occurred to me as I was watching it, it's probably the, the last ensemble 70s sitcom with... All surviving cast members, mm. but, but not, now. not anymore. We didn't end up watching that because you didn't really like Dalla Deadly Number. Well, it wasn't I didn't like it. I just ha- I had nothing to say about it. Exactly the same as Shock in our right. Mission Impossible episode. <laughs> I raised I raised a protest. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think I think you actually could think of a lot of things to say. But my theory on this is is that you're kind of railing against the fact that I'm in charge now, and you kind of. You feel that you have to, you have to, as the man of the duo, you have to tell me what my place is. I flung myself on the floor and had a huge you had tantrum. a massive tantrum. <laughs> the meltdown to end all meltdowns. And I said, oh, for God's sake, if it'll shut you up, we'll do the other one. That's not what happened, really. I would, no. like, I would like to reassure our listeners there was no falling out at all. I wrote a page of notes for Dial a Deadly Number, which I can tell you what they were. Um, so uh, the opening titles, I said the cross-fading photographs is very 60s. I think it's live action in this colour one, isn't it? Yes. Uh, the black and white photography is gorgeous. It is. Um, is the murderer Reese Shearsmith? The dialogue is very rapid and witty, especially with uh, Stephen Peel. It reminds me of Howard Hawke's movies. That kind of, you know, the really fast-paced, uh, the you know, the man and the woman having that kind of repartee back and forth, very, you know, very tightly, tightly choreographed dialogue. Yes. Where there's not even a space to think. It's just like snap, 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 snap. And they just they're they're so in tune with each other's sense of humour that they can. It's like us. Which I really like. We do that all well, of the like time. Us. Exactly. We do. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think actually. Actually, one of the reasons I didn't quite take to this episode is because they spend most of it apart, mm. again, interviewing people. So I missed that aspect of it. Also, another thing, I did, one of the aspects I didn't like it was, uh, I think John Steed in this, I think he's possibly a bit more chaste, as in C-H-A-S-T-E, in the colour ones. In this one, he's a bit horny, and I didn't like that. So we meet um, Tina Packer, who... We've we've previously met. She was Anne Travers in uh, Web of Fear. This is one of her rare roles. We don't. She's only got like ten entries on IMDb, and he really gives her a proper eyeing up, and I didn't like it. I'm sure she did though. It made me a bit nauseous. She she looked a bit peeved by it, but I I sort of like John Steed being a proper gentleman rather than a bit of a pervy old sixties. But everyone everyone in the sixties, all the men in the sixties were just constantly. Horny all the time, perpetually. There's an episode, of, I can't remember which one it is, an episode of Star Trek where there's like a moderately attractive woman walking through the corridors of the Enterprise and all the all the red shirts as she's passing are kind of leaning against the walls. <laughs> they can't stand upright. They just kind of have to lull, little loll about in a you know, seductive way because just a woman happens to be walking past. It's like, what's wrong with you people? And John, yeah, Steve can't control himself here. I mean... I mean, I think there is somewhat of a difference 
between flirting with somebody and not being able to control yourself. <laughs> I, 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 I feel like I just need to just hop in. In defense, in defense of women who like men, we <laughs> no, need to know I, they like I mean, us they, somehow. We, 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 we don't do telepathic signal. I mean, they can't control themselves from flirting. It's like every, every woman they meet, they have to flirt outrageously. It's like, can you just not... It's like, it's not what I want. It's not a side of steed I want to see. Fair enough. Also, I didn't like... Because there's a wine tasting thread in this. Quite a lot of wine tasting going, which A, I found really smug. Uh, but there's a lot of spitting in it. Oh yes, yeah. And that slightly turned my stomach as well. I I enjoyed the bit where Emma Peel contemptuously just spits into <laughs> into space. So that was quite fun. But generally, these middle aged, these awful smug middle aged men and their wine nonsense—they're just spitting all the time. It's horrible. So I didn't like that. Mrs. Boardman looks like Morgana Robinson. I also wrote that. But that's all I have for that episode. Well, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, it's been a joy. <laughs> Um, uh, we'll see you next week. But luckily, but luckily, <laughs> I insisted. So then I, the following episode was Death at Bargain Prices. Uh, so I let the video run on to that. And the first five minutes, I was like, this is more like it. This is amazing. Yes, it, it, Death at Bargain Prices is more more something you can talk about. I just feel I just feel bad that we didn't get to talk about Peter Bowles enough. But um, we love him a lot and we miss him and he's a great actor we and, do. and we are big fans. I also wrote down Peter Bowles, the most reassuring overbite on television. It, it, you know, that's a fact. Let's talk about death at bargain prices. My, I, as you know, I am really bad at taking notes of things. I find death at bargain prices, despite the fact I've seen it many, 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 many times, it's one of those episodes that I can never remember once I've seen it. And it's not that I don't like mm. it. I just physically just don't remember it. Just And when I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, this is the first time I've ever seen this. Even though I know it's not the first time I've ever seen it. But my, my first note is that the finales come thick and fast in this first couple of scenes. Uh, cause, oh, really? Uh, yeah, when, uh, when Emma starts her little job in the department store, Steve comes to find her to have a little chat. He says... I heard you were upstairs in ladies' underwears. In ladies' underwear. I ran up the stairs three at the time. <laughs> <laughs> you see, the thing is, when Steed and when Steed and Peel flirt with each other, it's not creepy at all. It's just no. I don't mind it when it's those two because they are either just really taking the mick out of each other, or they genuinely mean it because they genuinely love each other. There's a whole section of the internet dedicated to John's. John Steed and Emma Peel being a thing. I'm here for that. So, yeah, any any kind of flirting between Steed and Peel, I'm like, yes, it's love, guys. It's love. I've known it from the first. Uh, but my very my very favourite FNAR in this was when the house detective of the store came up to Emma and said, house dick? And she just looked at him like, ex- yeah. excuse <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And then it obviously had to explain, and she was like, oh, <laughs> It's a shame. Um, but yes, I was a fan of the fnaring. Would you like my personal and rather sad and tragic take on the uh, Steed Peel relationship? If it's going to make me depressed, then no, to be honest. <laughs> I think it will, but I, I should say it now, I've built it up. I think for all their jolly repartee, I think he's desperately in love with her. Yes. And... At the end of every episode when she goes, ta then, and goes off in her sports car 
and he sort of, he he looks wistfully after her. I think his his little heart is breaking every time that he's going. She's going home to Mister Peel. She doesn't go home to Mister Peel. Oh, where does she go? She just goes home. She's oh, okay. Her husband in in series four and five. He had a I think a plane crash. His plane went down over the Amazon, so he he was missing, presumed oh. dead. So for all intents and purposes, Mrs. Peel was single for all of series four and five. Um, giant spoiler alert. In the oh, I've seen yes, in the I've first seen episode the, of series, her final episode. In the first episode of series six, Mr. Peel comes back. I've seen Mr. Peel, yes. Yes. And the the thing that should, should we not spoil it for people? Adam. Because <laughs> I really enjoyed seeing it. Adam, I'm not being funny. Mm. It was filmed in 1968. I think people are already spoiled. It's fine. I don't. I I hadn't. I didn't know until I saw it. I, it was a nice little moment. Well, I won't spoil yeah. it then. And I thought it was rather lovely and poignant as well. Yes, absolutely. For people who know what we're talking about, we've skipped over the opening scene, which is the the bit that grabbed me. The director of this is Charles Crichton, the great Charles Crichton, who uh, was director, movie director. We've met him before. I think he directed an episode of Man, maybe is it Man in the Suitcase that we watched? He's or something like that. We've we've seen one of his episodes before. He directed something. But yes, he's a film director. He directed Dead of Night, Lavender Hill Mob, Titfield Thunderbolt, Fish Called Wanda, uh, and you can kind of tell that he's a film director because it, it it's set in. A department store, and I think this is also what separates it from *Dial a Deadly Number*. That it's it's not visually very interesting, and the ideas aren't necessarily interesting. It's kind of, it it's it's killer pages, so the little buzzing pages. You you ring a number, and then a spike comes out through your heart, and you die, and and then there's wine tasting, and it's not not super thrilling. But this one opens in a a department store. It's all set in a department store, so that's a much more visually interesting place, and. The opening scenes are quite trippy and surreal with the uh, the doomed agent after hours in the store going up and down in the cage lift and he's seeing the you know all the mannequins in the store and it's quite it's quite twilight zone it reminded me of the twilight zone a lot especially when uh, after he after he gets shot by the evil body uh, Yogi Bear starts giggling there's a display of Hanna Barbera creatures and then before he gets shot. It's Huckleberry Hound's kind of jiggles. I thought it was Yogi Bear. That moment when the large Hanna-Barbera figure, whichever dog or bear it is, kind of jiggles just before the killer emerges, that's Mm. a really creepy moment as well. I really like that. It's possibly my favourite moment in any of the episodes we watched was just that cartoon character jiggling. It's really creepy and surreal and a bit horror film kind of Creepy thing. jiggle. And I think that's something that a lot of the episodes do. Even the ones that become a bit more formulaic, they often have really strong openings. One of the ones I watched in an extracurricular way was A Surfeit of H2O, mm. which has a really creepy opening. Yes, it does. That was very surreal as well. It's essentially a poacher being drowned by heavy rainfall. In one specific spot. In one specific spot, and he ends up gasping like a, a landed fish. And then later, his body has gone, but there's just a furrow in the ground in the shape where he was, and it's full of water. And it's Yeah, but it's it, that opening's really violent, and it's like a horror film. Even though he, it's just somebody being rained on, but it's just, it's quite horrifying. So it does sort of have a balance between is quite brutal and horrifying, particularly for 1965, for goodness sake. And then the two rather endearingly smug leads. <laughs> they're very smug. 
I quite like it. I generally object to smugness, but there's something about these two being smug that I enjoy. I don't know what it is. They're not smug. They are smug. They're not. They're just posh. (laughs) I have to deal with you. (laughs) (laughs) We should also mention this is the slightly older sibling of Doctor Who. It's the same creator. It's um, Sidney Newman, Mm. Canadian television executive Sidney Newman came up with this one in 1961 and then he uh, came up with Doctor Who for the BBC. So I think this is sort of like, this is like the upper class Doctor Who. Yes. And then Doctor, Doctor Who is the middle class Avengers. Like it's the the Frost Report with the three, John Cleese, Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett. So you've got the Avengers is, is John Cleese and then Doctor Who is Ronnie Barker and then Columbo is Ronnie Corbett. That's can you imagine, can you imagine Ronnie Corbett as Columbo just going into like a big, a big monologue about, about the octopus at the zoo? I knows my place. <laughs> And I think I like this episode more because it has a lot more peel and steed, or steed and peel, steel and peed. Steel and peed. They're in it together a lot more. They are. Bouncing off each other and, yeah, just their their interplay and their chemistry makes it. I think you can't really, when you have two lead characters in a show, you can't really underestimate the chemistry between them. Like we saw with Fraser Hounds and Patrick, Fraser Hines and Patrick Troughton. May I have some service, please? Charming. I asked the chief predator where to find you, and he said, Ah, Mrs. Peel is in ladies' underwear. I rattled up the stairs three at a time. Mary Quip's department on the fifth floor, sir. Ah, Mrs. Peel. Our. Only been working here half a day, already enfolded the communal bosom. Find anything? Yes. None of the staff here have the faintest idea about running a store. Whatever they are, they're certainly not salesmen. Fact? Instinct. Interesting. What have you been doing? Pinters were taken over a year or so ago. Lock, stock and barrel. The whole chain of stores by Horatio Kane. King Kane? One of the original fathers of industry. So that's what they meant. I heard some of the staff talking about the king upstairs. He's here? Mm-hmm. Living at the top of a building. A disused department's been converted for him. Really? Where is it? The Department of Discontinued Lines. You should fit in rather well. It's a matter of opinion. It's the top of the building, sir, up the stairs and beyond the executive staff restaurant. Extremely civil of you, madam. Thank you. Patrick McNee and Diana Rigg were, they stayed really close friends all through the rest of their of their lives. Um, and it was, again, like the Adam West Burtward thing, like the minute they met, it was just, it was a total love at first sight thing. And they just totally got each other and... That's how it made so much sense. We haven't seen the Kathy Gailey uh, era of the Avengers uh, together. As much as they got on really well, um, they played off each other really well on screen. It's the difference between going out and, and having a good time with, with a friend and going out and having a good time with your best friend. And you can you can see it on, on the screen. They, the interactions are more intuitive than scripted. Mm. Uh, and it's, 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 really, it's really lovely to see them it's lovely to see them interacting in any way and i think there's often that physical closeness as well and not in like a actually not in a pervy way no. but just sort of the fact that people with that kind of chemistry will just sort of naturally have the the sort of physical closeness and be more interactive with each other than two people who are professional actors who get on fine but you know don't necessarily have that chemistry so you can really yeah you can really tell and that that does come off the screen their characters their personalities who they are they're deep inside of them things. They're mm. psyche. Thank you. Yes. Uh, are similar. <laughs> yes. You don't realise that there's an age gap because 
he balances out her and she she makes it she like brings out his youthful side not that for not that 42 is old in any way shape or form very young very 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 young I, in fact 47 is very young as well 47 is dead most. young 47 is the new 22. You're, you're, you're a kid at 47. We have uh, T.P. McKenna in this, a young T.P. McKenna, very, playing a very sinister character. We also have Alan Cuthbertson, who might not be an immediately recognisable name, but is a very a re- immediately recognisable face. Oh, he's been in all the things. He's one of those things. people was just who was in everything, playing colonels, government ministers and supercilious store clerks and he's a supercilious store clerk in this one but you, you would you would absolutely know him if you saw him he was in every every single thing possible he really playing was. exactly the same character with a plum with a plum i enjoyed watching someone in 1965 complaining about modern life how rubbish modern life is in the good old days she just goes, some things never change, do they? They really don't. I do have one complaint about this episode, and it's it's a very period-specific thing. And I think I, w- I watched five and a half episodes in total. And rather astoundingly, this is a complaint I have about two of the episodes that I watched. The villain is in a wheelchair. Oh, yeah. Two whole episodes feature the villain in a wheelchair. I forget the name of the actor who plays. So he's a very, very well-known actor. Andre Morel. In this one, that's it. Andre Morel in that one, and in the Cybernauts, it's uh, Michael Goff. Yeah. Yes, Batman's butler fella. Yes. I'll touch on the Cybernauts a little bit later because it's it's not one of our official episodes. It's not. Yes, that's a bit unfortunate. I think because this is a a a villain in a wheelchair who's obsessed with nuclear bombs. I and this is 1965, so I think this is a, a Doctor Strange love reference Doctor Strange was an extremely popular film and I think quite tonally similar to the Avengers not not completely similar but it's out there in a similar sort of countryside so I think yeah they were quite influenced by that but I think there's there has been such a surfeit of H2O disabled yes there's been a surfeit of H2O there's been such a surfeit over the years of disabled villains or villains with some kind of facial scarring that we just don't need it anymore. Well, no, we don't. But I, I, uh, and speaking as a disabled person, I feel like casual ableism in the 1960s just is par for the course. And it's frankly probably worse today. Um, they just, they just get a little bit, they just get a little bit smarter about saying it now. I mean, the, the, obviously there were an awful lot of things that are 100% wrong about the way that the 1960s dealt with various social issues. And there are, there are styles. There are styles of, of, of acting and of, uh, and there are certain representations that thankfully no longer exist. But it doesn't mean that the attitudes have gone in any way, shape, or form. So when people and, I, and I'm not speak, I'm not speaking personally. I'm speaking very generally. When people talk about you know how racist, homophobic, ableist, etc., 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 things recorded in the past were, they never seem to note that things are just as bad now, but they're just not taking notice of it. You've got to take this sort of thing with a little bit of under-advisement rather than with a pinch of salt because there really wasn't the awareness and there wasn't the knowledge then and they were working the best that they could with the knowledge that they had. And I I think also 60s TV was very tropey, a lot more tropey than it was now. Yeah, there was an awful lot that that the television viewer could deal with back then that they were they expected 
their standards were not the same as they mm. are now. Um, D- now people should know better. People should know better now. Um, and that makes when you when you see like for example um, on on Twitter in the last in the last few days I've been trying to find I've been trying to get recommendations for decent Latinx um, representation in in television shows and nobody can help me because because there's hardly any and and this 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 is a big thing this isn't just a thing that I'm noticing this is this is a thing among among Latinx actors and, and directors and etc. Everybody seems to be either part of a gang, an illegal immigrant, part of a drug cartel. The housekeeper. A housekeeper, a nanny. There's, there's nobody. The, 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 there are very few examples in in current media now of good Latinx representation of Latinx people just being people living their lives and, and going home and making tea and... And, and I know things like going home and making tea and just going to work on on particularly, like acting worthy or or television show worthy but just having the stories that white people would have having the stories that not. white people would have it but things like this aren't happening now so it's difficult to be too angry at the fact that correct representation and wholesome representation of disabled people lgbt people bipoc people that we didn't get it back in the 60s it's it's very difficult to be upset to be so upset about it because we're still not getting it is is the point that I'm making in a very roundabout way yes it's it is it's tropiness but it is unfortunate that it's it's two wheelchair villains within such a short space of time yeah it's it's not it's not nice and, and, it, and I, I speak as a person who can't walk very well and needs to use walking aids it makes you mad it makes you angry but it certainly doesn't turn you into a super villain if only if only it did yeah I think one you could see is careless but two within four episodes like oh another one i think also from the episodes of series four that i've watched it's very very formulaic like the villain the villain from the cybernauts and the villain from the house that jack built have pretty much an identical motivation yes and most of the villains have some kind of technological thing it's essentially posh people trying to stamp out technological innovation (laughs) (laughs) Posh people don't like it up them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they, ha- they, they have different combinations of the same ideas every week. What I will say is that these, these shows have some great uh, guest casts. They really do. A Surfeit of H2O has both Jeffrey Palmer and Talfrin Thomas, a great combination in anyone's books. Uh, I do like a bit of Talfrin Thomas. Uh, the Cybernauts has everyone. It has Bert Quark. Literally it everyone. Has Bernard Horsfall. It has... John Hollis, the baldy fellow from Empire Strikes Back, who's always great, and he turns up in a lot of things. It's great seeing sort of younger versions of all these people familiar from 70s TV cropping up with their dark, brill-creamed hair. Yeah, we like we like a bit of that. So we should probably sort of... We've, we've been going a long time, haven't really described the plot of Death at Bargain Prices, although the plots of these are very similar. This is about... He's like an evil scientist, or is he kind of an evil engineer? Yes. A lot of the time, aren't they? They're sort of into technology. Department stores are always a great place to set something like this because they just look great, particularly in the 60s. Yeah, you don't get a department store these days, really. Not so much, no. They're looking for a nuclear bomb, a nuclear bomb, hidden, nuclear bomb, hidden inside the department store. Then they realise the department store is the bomb. So that's quite neat. Mm -mm -mm. And there's a scene where that... 
holding a professor captive. Yes. We think it's a... Or at least I thought it was a flashback to the jungle, but actually it's a jungle diorama inside the department store and it's not a flashback. That's quite cool. Yes, they, they, thre- they threaten him with a succulent. They do. I'd be most perturbed if I was threatened with a succulent. We've all been there. Many times. Also, this has toy Daleks in it. Hooray! Toy Daleks. Toy Daleks. Louis Marx Daleks. I'm sufficiently nerdy. I mean, I don't think there are any other toy Daleks in 1965 apart from the Louis Marx ones. But the Louis Marx ones were instantly recognisable because the shape is wrong. Their heads are too small. They come to too much of a point. Uh, so they are very distinctively Louis Marx Daleks. They don't look like Daleks. They look like themselves. Uh, and they did occasionally crop up in Doctor Who as, you know, if they needed masked Daleks, they'd just buy a bunch of Louis Marx toys. But you could tell them because they look wrong. They're the wrong shape. But it's great seeing them out of context in the toy department. Steve gets beaten up by the baddies and goes to visit Emma. And he's like, he's like, I've been mortally wounded. <laughs> Um, he's, and she pull yourself together. Son. She she is so much like he he is there all. Please give me sympathy and love. Please kiss my hurt better. And she's like, oh for <laughs> God's sake, it's only a black eye. Auntie. Get just get over yourself, Steed love. And she gives him some like eye wash, and he's like, that's not um. what I meant. And you kind of feel a bit sorry for it because it, it is quite mm. a shiner. Um, he just wants a cuddle. He just wants a cuddle, and who? But he's too shy to ask for one. Who wouldn't want to cuddle Steve? That's my question. He understands the concept of champagne and chocolate in the female psyche, and frankly, that man is a keeper. He dresses well. And who wouldn't want to cuddle from an Emma Peel? Exactly, as well? I hundred percent would have a cuddle from Emma Peel. No letters on that, please, guys. That's not what I meant. Whatever happened to you? Department of discontinued lines. Wentworth threw me out. I've got just what you need. I'm thinking of lodging a complaint against the management. Proves one thing, though. They must have something to hide. Jarvis thinks so, too. House detective. He's agreed to help. Cheers. I expected a larger glass. Oh, really, see the fuss you make over a tiny bruise. Tiny? What on earth's that? Hmm? Oh, it's an exploded molecular construction. So that's what hit me. Oh, I feel as though I was sprouting two heads. Have you room for expansion? You're supposed to be a ministering angel. Here am I grievously hurt. Bruised. My pride was hurt. Come now. Surely you've been thrown out of places before. Only the best places. You will survive. Ugh. Would you like a drink? Intravenously. Those are the bits I like watching. It's just them interacting and their their quips. I can take or leave the plot. It's like having a little giggle with each other. and. I like her weird fighting style. She does this weird finger-clicking thing. Yes, I made a note about... It's very strange. I don't know what that was. She just snaps her fingers and, and, and then does weird kicking things and... and manic gesticulation rather than actual karate chops it's just it's just very dramatic hydrogen (laughs) (laughs) flinging her hands up in frustration (laughs) yeah i I don't know if this is a a diana rig thing nobody has ever karateed in that way before or since it's quite it's it's quite quite strange and speaking of strange fighting styles 
uh, John Steed is the most middle-class fighter a fighter has ever been because he is the only man on earth who would bring a cricket bat to a knife fight. <laughs> no, no, he's definitely upper class. He, so he is. You can tell he's upper class because he can fight. He can fight, and he's not afraid to fight. He's like, I don't care if I get a rip in my suit. I exactly. I can just I can just take it down to my fella on Savile Row. He'll sort that out in a gym. Yeah, he's the original Kingsman. He is the original Kingsman, but with more class. Sorry, Colin Firth, not sorry at all. Before we get on to the final one, The House That Jack Built, maybe we'll mention that I watched the Cybernaut uh, extracurricularly, mainly because I'd seen a clip of it. I'd seen the ending scene years ago and found it really frightening. How can it possibly have frightened you when it's basically just a rip-off of the Cybermen? No, it's pre-Cybermen. The Cybermen was a rip-off of the Cybernauts? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, the Cybermen, I think, would be... This was 1965. The Cybermen would be 1966. I think think they'd be 1966. They're the final William Hartnell story, the Cybermen first appear in. And they're quite different. They're much more human in that. They have human hands and cloth faces, and they're a lot creepy. And they have weird... They have weird sing-song voices that I can't quite do a good impression of. The the later Cybermen were more sort of manly and they talked like this. No, Doctor. It is you who will die. Mm. But the early Cybermen talked more like this. We were exactly like you once, but our cybernetic scientists realised that our race was getting weak. Weak? How? Our lifespan was getting shorter, so our scientists and doctors devised spare parts for our bodies until we could be almost completely replaced. Silly little me, I've dropped my toast in foot. Yeah, so they were a stranger, stranger thing back then. Whereas the, yeah, the cybernauts are more robots, but yeah, I think it's that chopping thing they do, the that karate chopping stuff, and just the relentlessness of it. And when I, yeah, when I saw this clip of this when I was little, and the, they when they start chopping at each other, I found it really scary. The scene in the warehouse at the end, I have this vivid memory of finding it really scary. And I think because also I, at that time I would have been aware of of the Cybermen, obviously. And they were quite comfortably science fiction. Whereas I think that Avengers episode, or suddenly out of context, just the end scene, looked much more like real life. It didn't look like fun sci-fi. It looked like a serious drama with these chopping robots in it. Uh, horrible. Yeah. I see. Scary. So that that was that bit was quite good. Uh, it, it also... Poor old Michael Goff. He turned up in a, a, a Doctor Who story called the celestial toy maker which has had a lot of criticism over recent years for orientalism i see and he turns up in an episode of the avengers which is stuffed full to the rafters with orient orientalism that's <laughs> so not he what you can't want. catch a break it's not what you no. want and it has bert quark who at least is an actual east asian actor yeah uh, but he, from he, he does he does say Yes, he's he's of East Asian descent, yes. and he does say at one point, "We have a saying." Like, no, they <laughs> they had a Japanese character say, "We have a saying." Oh no! And and they they say honourable a lot and things. Oh like that. And again, no! Again, it, it's it's sixties tropiness. Yeah, it happens so it happens so much in so many things, and it's just it's it's embarrassing. It is the actual stuff with the cybernauts themselves was really good, but. The rest of the episode wasn't. And the whole bit with all the, the karate instructor and everything. 
Oh, it's a bit painful. There's a lot of a lot of karate-based padding. The cybernauts themselves were really frightening. Just the relentlessness of them smashing through doors and they their blank, didn't care. weird faces. They didn't care. And their big care. eyes that are slightly too far apart. And they wear hats. They wear Cybermen hats. Cybermen don't wear hats. They should. They should. They, imagine cyber, Cybermen with fedoras or, or tamashanters. And they wear really nice, they wear really nice overcoats as well, these yeah. Cybermen. So, so that was quite they're, scary. They're, they're, more, they're more fashionably, fashion, fashionably conscious than, than the Cybermen. They go around in wetsuits with uh, plastic balls <laughs> glued to them. <laughs> you did not think that through. <laughs> they're not ping pong balls but they're those balls with holes in right okay i i i never expected for a moment that while recording about avengers we would start talking about the cybermen's balls but here we are the plastic balls (laughs) so this oh, I'm just not the headphones off. Oh, for I'm not even drunk. Wow, check you out. Uh, so this now brings us on to the house that Jack built. And now this was the one that was a bit of a no-brainer for me because it's certainly my favourite monochrome episode of The Avengers. Um, but I also thought that you would love it because of how head screwy it is. Yes, would you like to give us a little little premise of, of what goes on here and and, and, the, and then you can then you can tell me how wrong I am. <laughs> <laughs> so this episode is about uh, Emma Peel gets in. Now Emma Peel receives a letter to say that she has inherited a house from an uncle she didn't know, but who has died. She didn't know he existed, but he's left her a house in his will. Nice. She goes off to this house, mm-hmm. and inexplicable things happen. She gets her head thoroughly messed with in this house. She absolutely very does, and. I would say this is much more like it. This is much more up my street. I told you, I knew it. Knew it. It's, it's like, oh, this is this is what I want to see. Mm. This this feels like it's much more like the colour ones. Yes. It's not formulaic like the others, so it doesn't open with a murder. It doesn't have the two characters going around to different experts interviewing them there aren't really other characters in it particularly i mean there's a couple of other characters in it but there aren't characters in locations who they have to go and visit no. it's, it's pretty much all taking place in this one house even though i already said that i didn't like the first one particularly because the two characters that steel and peed weren't in it together actually this is mostly emma peel on her own mm. with very little john steed but the actual episode itself is so different and unusual that it doesn't matter because it's really keeping your attention there are many things i like about this episode i i would say like that the, visually the thing i really liked about it was the room you know where she kept on turning around and she was no matter where the she went, recurring room. No matter where she was the in the house. Notes. Yes, the buzzy room. Yeah. So every time she 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 keeps going down these corridors, and every door she goes to, she always ends up back in the same room, which is actually something I use a lot in my writing. Is is this kind of space apparently folding in on itself. Yeah, and it doesn't even matter if she goes to a different room. Like even if she just turns around in the same room, and and, and then mm. and then turns back again, she's she's back in this in this room which is the most 60s room that has ever existed <laughs> and i can't explain it any better than that but it is it has got 
the essence of the mid-1960s swinging London. That's what that room looks like. That's just what it looks like. But it's quite like. creepy That's what as it well. Is. It's very creepy. Um, and it works so it works so much better in black and white. I think I think the I think the, the black and white lends itself to this episode so well because I was just about to say I so wish this was in color. Oh, wow, <laughs> just because really? it would be beautiful. I mean, it, just it I mean, I think be. it's good in black and white because it's like the Twilight Zone, and this is very tonally like the Twilight Zone. It's it's a character being driven to their wits' end, and we'll get onto that. But I think it would also look utterly beautiful in colour. It would look beautiful in colour, but I think atmospherically, um, it, it feels more monstrous and unworldly in black and white. It, it feels more like a 1960s, inverted commas, modern take on a psychological horror of the 40s. So it it works so much better in, in a film noir kind of colour setting. And I think, unlike the other episodes, which are very plot-heavy, in fact, possibly my main complaint is they're a little bit too plot-heavy, this one almost has no plot at all. It's just it it's is, just literally it, it's all about very visual. Elemental. Yeah, uh, which I think is really good. It's, it's much more cinematic and much more... Uh, and it, in its own way, it's quite repetitive, but that's the point. It's the same thing keeps happening over and over, and that's what's driving her spare. Yes. The thing I like especially Especially in this episode, and and this this isn't just this isn't a thing that is peculiar to this episode. This is this is certainly a theme of Steed and Peel's relationship. Steed doesn't save Emma. Right. Steed knows Emma can take care of herself. Steed will go. Steed will go out to help. He will go. He will go out to give her support if she needs it, but. Steed knows that Emma can take care of herself, and that is a very that is an atti- a nineteen sixties attitude that you don't see in many yes. other in many other shows. For example, the Champions, which we still haven't watched, but we will do one day, I promise. Um, Craig and Richard will often, particularly Craig, will often say to Sharon McCready, "Let let us guys deal with this. You just keep your pretty head down." There is none of that with John Steed. John Steed would never say that to any woman ever, even even when it's a, when it's a complete innocent character, and she has absolutely no no idea of what's going on, and she really does need helping and saving. He he won't say anything like that. He won't he, he won't he will allow a woman to use her own agency to take care of herself and he will be there as support not because he's a man who can swoop in and save the day but because he just is a person who is there to help Mm. and that is such a refreshing thing and it is a thing you would not expect from an upper class middle-aged man in the 1960s and that this is more why I love John Steed than anything else because he's a very modern man living inside a very very old-fashioned suit Yes. <laughs> well, sort of old-fashioned, but also it's it's uh, Pierre. Is it Pierre, Pierre Cardin? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's Savile Row tailoring. It's modern Savile Row tailoring, but beautiful, for your city gent. Beautiful clothes. Mm-hmm. But what I'll also say about the the writing of of Emma Peel in this episode is is that they allow her to be scared, and I think that's a thing that often trips up a lot of modern writers. Is that you have yeah. the kick-ass 
the kick-ass woman, but she can only be kick-ass. The strong woman trope, yeah. Yes, she can only be like sassy and smart and she'll... She, yeah. She'll kick your bottom, but in this they they allow her to be scared and that and, and we see this character who is almost never scared. Yeah. And this is the episode where you do actually see her start to... She starts to lose her cool and, and at the beginning she's doing her usual thing of being a bit... A bit bit too bit too cool for school mm. and also too old for school mm. uh but she's doing she's doing her usual thing of of you know having a, a bit of a, a one-liner to herself but as it goes on she's she's clearly losing her cool gradually just bit by bit and you see her start to be actually scared and start to be actually rattled and look really worried but then she comes out the other side of it and pulls herself together and says no there has to be an explanation for this and then she works out she does and she doesn't need steve to come in and go and be all you know he doesn't come in and be the doctor and go i'll tell you what's going on no. but but that's the thing yes yeah, so so they, they allow her to go through being scared and the whole idea of this house is to make her lose her marbles and she does start to mm, she does and, and even after she's started to think right i can work this out she does still start to you know she's, she doesn't she still 100% is kind trust of, what's going on around her no the strong female character trope, which yes. is, is which is not what it a is. A misunderstanding yes. of no, it's a misunderstanding of what that means. It means you know, it means a strongly written character. It doesn't mean that she has to be Ellen Ripley. No, not at all, not at all. Uh, and and really, the strength the strength of a woman. I feel for myself personally, if speaking as a woman, the strength in a woman is being scared and doing the thing anyway. Yes, because women have got a lot. A lot more reserve than anybody gives them credit for. We we have got an awful lot of things to deal with just in society in general, and just being a woman is a terrifying thing sometimes. Not even not even a woman being put into a situation where she's where she's it's it's specifically designed to make her lose her mind. Just the the gen the, the general day to day aspect of being a woman in a world full of of men really is difficult. It's difficult. It's scary. Uh, it's 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 scary if you if you're a, if you're a gay woman if you're a trans woman if you're a career woman if you're a housemaker if you're you know being a woman isn't easy and many many times women do not have anybody to save us women we have to save ourselves we have to keep going we have to, we we have to be the strong ones for ourselves for our families for our friends we have to be the support and. Um, the fact that we we get to see Emma, who is we know that she's very very intelligent. We know that she's absolutely badass. We know usually unflappable. She's usually unflappable. She's beautiful. She's very well put together. She's she has great dress sense. She's got an awful lot of great things going for her. Emma Peel is terrified. If Emma Peel can be terrified and can still carry on and can get the stuff done, any woman can carry on and get the stuff done because Emma Peel can do it, so we can do it. And I just think I, I just think Emma Peel is one of the most important female characters that have ever been invented. And that is that is the very tiny hill I'm gonna die on. Oh, I think that's a fairly decent sized hill. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's also interesting about the character development of Emma Peel as a as an actual character in the show is we see a completely different side of her, not just her being scared, but we get a lot of backstory where we find out she was uh, Emma Knight, yes, her maiden name, yes, and she wasn't always a leather clad villain fighting person. She was a young industrialist. She most certainly was. One of the first notes I have got 
when, after she after she leaves Steed developing photos in his flat. Um, just just holiday snaps, guys. Nothing weird. Um, <laughs> is that she is accosted by a creepy version of Pat from Ghosts? <laughs> he says to her, "Oh, it's Kim Wilde." <laughs> I like how strange it is. Yeah, I just wrote a list of the things that were happening. A key with electronic properties, a giant enigmatic scout, a spy camera in the verge, a moving sign. So it's much more mysterious than most of the episodes. Yes. The change in signpost was very anxiety-inducing. And then when the road closed, I was like, oh, no, they're never going to find her. They're never going to find her. They're never going to find her. Uh, There's a music box, stuffed animals. All of the things. Uh, the, the giant scout has a gun. Nobody wants that. No. Oh, and then and then I say, whatever she doesn't have, she always ends up back in the weird buzzy room. And then she finds Pat actually dead on the table. So then she does the only thing any self-respecting 60s lady would do in this situation. She pours a giant feck off brandy and thinks to herself. <laughs> then figures out the mechanism of how the rooms work. If all else fails, just pour a giant brandy. And I love the fact... That's a big brandy. I love the fact that not only did she... And, and this is a thing that I really have a lot of respect for. And I think this is this is potentially an autistic thing for me. I am a stickler, and you can ask any member of my family, and they will tell you I am oh, I so shall. horrendously anal about this. Uh-oh. I need to have the correct receptacle for any beverage that I have. Really? I need I'm the to have exact the correct. Opposite. I, no, no. If it's not the right glass, I can't drink it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's the nicest drink in the world. If you've not given it to me in the right glass, I can't. I just can't drink it. I will. I will. I will go and get the correct receptacle and then decant it from one <laughs> to the other. I, I. I have to have specific. I have to drink out of a specific glass. But whenever anybody in sixty shows needs a brandy, mm. a brandy glass always appears, and I'm like, yes. <laughs> This is how these things should be done. If you're gonna have a drink, do it properly. This this entire house is is rigged up to make Emma lose her mind, but they make sure that they have brandy and brandy glasses. If they were making me lose my mind, they'd give me a bottle of brandy and two scotch glasses. And I'd be like, What the hell? Everyone in this is very sophisticated though. It feels a lot like the prisoner and how much mm. more would have I I have liked the prisoner if it had a character in it that I cared about. Yeah, that is genuinely the problem with the prisoner. I mean, as you know, it's one of my favorite shows ever, but num- number 6 is so unlikable. If Mr. Peel was the prisoner, it probably would have been one of my favorite shows ever. But I oh think no. So, but no, it's the most terrifying man in history. Patrick McGowan. Being all severe in that. Yeah, being just like glaring at everybody. And I also said, this is more like what I was expecting from the Avengers. Not all those interviews. Mm. Uh, Steed falls for the old road close sign at first, but he's no fool. He drives straight through the sign and then pats his Bentley in a congratulatory way just before the tyres are all sabotaged and blown out like. So the bit where she keeps going into the recurring rooms and she finally... After a few times around, there's the machine, the whirly machine in the middle with the, the Perspex glass dome over the top. Oh. So to see if it's the same room... Or, yes. Uh, to, see, to, to see if it's the same room or different rooms, she takes out her lipstick to put a mark on it. And I thought, now this will be... In- I did actually consciously think this as it was happening. This will be interesting to see whether she does something kind of a bit smart and smug and arch. Like what she... What, 
the mark she puts on it is some kind of like ah, some kind of arch Avengers thing. Like because like on her front door she has an eye. Yes, she does. She doesn't just have a spy hole like normal people. She I has an actual that. big eye, which I do. But it's very I, arch. I, it's very Avengers. I would really love to have that on, on my front door. I don't know if my landlord would let me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, not. landlord, please may I have a giant eye on the front of my door. I live so- in a corner. Nobody would see it, but I would I would be happy knowing that it was there. She's taken out her lipstick. She's going to put a mark on this. Is it going to be something smart and arch and Avengers-y? And she puts an X. I thought, right, she's really rattled. Mm. This is how we know she's rattled. She just puts an X. She doesn't draw a picture of a bowler hat or something like that. Just an X. It's just starting to get genuinely claustrophobic, which I liked. Another thought was, I bet uh, John Steed was an influence on John Pertwee's Doctor. There's a bit where he has a little a little smile to himself and he he pats his vintage car affectionately. Yeah. And that's such a Pertwee move. He pats his Bentley. At this point, this it would be William Hartner would be the Doctor who's who's worlds apart from John Steed. Like they 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 would be totally opposite characters. But I think Pertwee he's often seen as being that kind of Adam Adamant sort of character. And I think there's a lot of Sherlock Holmes in him. I think he's very John Steed. Like looks-wise, he's very different, and dress sense-wise, he's very different because he's he's velvet jackets and frills and capes and things like that. So he's not the city gent type. I think he's more John Steed than he is First Doctor. Oh yes. I mean, I'm saying oh yes, but I've never <laughs> actually seen any John Pertwee Doctor Who. No. I mean, I I mean yet because I I know that there yeah, we'll is so much it. more Doctor Who in my future. <laughs> I have got it all to look forward to. And you will love it. I can't wait. You will love it. Pertwee's a lot grumpier and more unpleasant than Steed, but he's a bit flash. So Emma Peel goes into a room and there's a sign which says, and this I really liked, Welcome to an exhibition dedicated to the late Mrs Emma Peel. Mm. That's nice. That's very Twilight Zone as well. Anything that kind of evokes that Twilight Zone feel for me is a winner. Yeah, I mean, obviously I've not seen Twilight Zone because I know Uh, it's one that uh, you're going to make. That will be in your future as well, yes. Yeah, uh, which is kind of why I've avoided the Twilight Zone in the last, like, 18 months or so. But... It's also quite. Um, it's very a Christmas Carol. Oh yeah, I guess so. Yeah. The whole the whole Ebenezer Scrooge gravestone and gloating over his death kind of. The the villain in this is is doing that sort of thing, isn't he? That he's. Yeah. Yeah. Because she she does see lots of relics from her childhood and old photographs in this museum exhibition but it's very very strange, which I'd like about it. It's it's unexpected. It's what and I I think I like things where you don't know what's going to happen next it's genuinely surprising no and a thing that you really don't expect to 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 happen next is for a random escape convict to just turn up and start singing or reciting the house that jack built this is the bull that tossed the horse that kicked the cow that chased dog that bit the cat, that killed the rat, that lived in the house that Jack built. Jack built, Jack built, Jack built. Who are you? Chase the dog. Dog. What is your name? Who 
are you? Bad man. Bad, bad, bad man. Ran away. How did you get here? Ran away. Long time ago. Very long time ago. You don't yeah. accept that. But let no. me tell you, that's what happens. Yeah? <laughs> that's what happens. That, that actually reminded me the neck bone connected to the head bone. Mm. It reminded me a bit of that. From the prisoner. Yeah. By Alexis Canner. Yes, it's it, it's very prisoner, this one. That's Griffith My Davis. My prisoner, not your prisoner. Yes. Griffith Davis is the escaped convict. He's very good. He is very good. He's very good. He, he's been trapped in this house and he has lost his marbles. So I think he's he's there in order to show the peril that she's in. He's someone that's been there before and it has driven him. Insane. Yeah, I feel as though this he was just he's just an innocent bystander really because obviously this this was all concocted and and put into place for Emma specifically. But because we saw that we saw right at the beginning of the episode this this guy just escaping from prison, um, he just sought shelter in the nearest big house, and this is what's happened to him because he got himself caught in Emma's trap. Yes. So he is he's very much uh, collateral damage. And he's an extra bit of peril because sometimes he's pitiful, but sometimes he's aggressive. Yes, which makes the the, the immediate threat to Emma even scarier. Mm. Uh, it's it's it really this episode messes with your head so much in a way that you would not expect from sixties television. You you might expect something like this in nineteen sixty seven or sixty eight, but this is nineteen sixty five. This is when London is very swinging, and uh, this is pre psychedelia. Total pre psychedelia. Just everything. Everybody's having a nice time. Everybody's having. Everybody's having a lovely time. The Beatles have got lovely hair. They're all stoned off their noggins, but it's not gone weird. <laughs> George doesn't look like a witch. George, I was just about to say that. Oh my god! That's your quote. Li- <laughs> I was literally the next words out my mouth. George is not looking like a witch. Um. But the thing is, I mean, like you're giggling at me, but you know what I mean. <laughs> like this is this is one of your prime quotes from Magical Mystery Tour episode. <laughs> I, I thought that was like my biggest throwaway quote. <laughs> when George starts looking like a witch, yeah, I know you're about. Right. Yeah. But it's true. Patrick McNee is quite conspicuously not on location, so there's lots of back projection, which actually in black and white works all right. There's a man dressed in a bowler hat and a nice coat we see hopping about in the foliage, but only from behind. Mm. And, and we all say to ourselves, that's not Patrick McNee's bottom. That's, that's not Patrick McNee's bottom. <laughs> I don't think anybody has ever said that. <laughs> <laughs> I said it in my George. That's not Patrick McNee's bottom. It's a bit silly. It's a bit silly. <laughs> what... What? Which line is it from Hard Day's Night that he delivers in that? That that's not. That's not your grandfather. Oh yeah, that's not your grandfather. But that's I've seen not, your grandfather. But I've seen Patrick McNee's bottom. <laughs> Whoa! He lives in your in house. house. <laughs> you weren't supposed to tell anyone. <laughs> well, everyone's entitled to, two, and that's me other one. <laughs> We're looking after it. 
anyway, we can't we can't let this disintegrate at this stage into a hard day's night again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah my final note on the episode is that, that it, it really feels like she's been through something by the end of it. And she Yeah. And, and it's quite nice that she does I think she doesn't want to appear vulnerable in front of Steed, so she does snap out of it and go back to quipping immediately, and she does sort of like a little snarky put-down. I can't remember exactly what it is, but I'm sure I'll drop in the the quote. (laughs) What happened to the shining armour? It's still at the laundry. Never mind. I'll give you a ride home on the old horse. I think that also is another thing that makes her a nice rounded character, that she has, not she a flaw, but I, I think it's she, she doesn't want to appear vulnerable in front of him and she's maybe a bit embarrassed to appear vulnerable. So she she's back. She just snaps out of it. She's back into quipping mode, even though she has been through something quite full on. She is. And there's, there's like, there's, there's an unspoken moment. There's certainly a look between them where he... He knows that she has been through something really profound and she looks exhausted and terrified and there is a horrified look in her eyes. Uh, There's some beautiful non-verbal acting going on between Diana and Patrick. Although he doesn't say anything to her and she doesn't say anything to him, they both know that something big has happened and maybe at some point in the future she will speak about it but for now it's enough for her that it's over and she can go home and he he can just give her a cuddle he knows she doesn't want to talk about it as well like he doesn't yeah and it's like it's fine that you don't want to talk about it maybe one day so he knows she just wants to banter so he's happy just to to banter just to banter yeah that's the definition of the best friend ever yes what a guy we love john steed in this house so yes, that was much more like it. That's more. That's more like it. That's what you wanted from your sixties television. From the Avengers, goodness sake! Absolutely. Yeah. I knew you'd like that one. I told yeah. you. So that was the Avengers. So I need to ask you a few, a few little questions. You certainly do. Who was your favourite and least favourite character? I mean, on one hand, you have Steel and Peed. Mm. Who I think are equally as good. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you have quite an array of tropey 60s characters. You do. Who are a bit interchangeable. And Pat from Ghosts, randomly. Pat from Ghosts. Yeah, he was quite cool. Yeah. I think I think taking it for granted that they're two of the best characters to have appeared on TV ever. I think my favourite character was probably the, the weird, mysterious giant boy scout, Pongo. I might have killed you. The speed you were going... The stopping distance of this car is 147 feet, allowing for average reflexes. I position myself 150 feet away. Very mathematical of you. I am a very mathematical person. You're also very stupid. Supposing I hadn't seen you. In that case, my death would have been entirely your fault. I would like a lift, please. You give me the fright of my life, and then you have the audacity to ask a favour. Where to? As far as you are going. I should say that I'm desperate to obtain a lift. Desperate enough to... uh, recompense you for your trouble that won't be necessary get in and next week in food club we're going to hear from kitty about the first time she ate an egg (laughs) i didn't think i'd like it um yes 
Sorry. You do you do I'm all so... of them. You do impressions for all of them. I am so sorry. Uh... <laughs> so your favorite and least favorite episodes out of the out of the two, not out of the five and a half. Oh well, I mean, uh, I think we've already answered that one. Have we? Because you kind of like both of them. Oh yeah, no, I mean the the house at Jack bit was definitely much more like it. Yeah, it's a good one, isn't it? It is. Yes. Let's be fair. And what are your favourite and least favourite elements of the show? The best elements are... I think there's two things. The black and white photography looks great, particularly as someone who is actually more used to watching the multi-camera shows. I mean, it's like a hot... You can't... It's difficult to comprehend the fact that season two or three of Doctor Who is concurrent with what we just watched. Oh, crikey, no. Because... The, the studio shows are so murky and prehistoric looking, and this looks like it was shot yesterday. You can tell there is such a bigger budget for the Avengers than, than for Doctor Who. Yes, it's not just some people in a tiny set with four cameras pointing at them and blurry shapes in this soupy murk. Yes, it's a, it it's actually a lot less looks blurry. like a feature film. There's there's a few occasions where the boom creeps into shot, so that kind of it kind of cheers you up a bit. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, no, I know where I am. <laughs> it's, ah, yes, it's not there, perfect. There it is. <laughs> There's the there boom. Hello, is. hello, cheeky. There's the. There's a cheeky little glimpse. <laughs> oh hello. <laughs> oh, I saw a wall. I saw a wall wobbling when he fell into it. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yes, there's a bit where it's kicky at a wall and it has a right old wobble. I tell you, there's more so wobbly walls in this than there is in Blake Seven and Prisoner. I, I, you know, yes. To, to, I, but I like, I like your shaky set. Yeah, I don't care about the shaky set. They don't do. it I think it adds to it. But yes, uh, I like the photography and I like the central characters the best. Obviously, I think my least favorite elements would, again, like last week, just it's a bit too formulaic. When it breaks that, and we do something like the house that Jack built, it's yes, yeah, it's, it's like we're in proper. This is what I'm expecting from the Avengers, and not this is what you want. Yeah, this is what I want. And I feel like a hypocrite saying it because one of the shows I've been binge watching lately has been Columbo, which oh, only yes. only works because it's incredibly formulaic, and it is a man just going around between people interviewing them. But I think what's different. And why it doesn't quite work here, and I think I prefer the Avengers when it's being more far out, is that they're just going around these people getting information. And uh, watching the Manita of Surrey Green, I, my attention was starting to wander, I'll, I'll have to admit. Whereas in Columbo, it's, a, it's also mind games, so it's not just... Very much, because everybody underestimates Columbo, don't they? Everybody thinks, oh, with this little, this little, this little thick Italian guy. And he's absolutely not. No, he's he's incredibly smart. He he plays bumbling. He is the Patrick Troughton of police detectives. But I, yes, it's not just a police procedural. It is actually about him using these interviews to dismantle the psyche and get these people to crumble and make mistakes. So, so that's what's compelling about it. <laughs> With the signs of the zodiac Throws paint in the mirror As he stands in his plastic bag Sister Emma rises Every round and round the garden Spends the whole day Saying I beg your pardon Thank you very, very much uh, For watching 972 episodes of The Avengers Even though I only asked you to watch two 
thank you everybody for listening in again to me having another go i'm very excited about this and next week is my final week of me being in charge of retro tube if adam lets me absolutely um i'm gonna give you a little clue as to what we're going to be talking about next week <coughs> my clue is the word energize There he goes, acting all illogically. If you have enjoyed the episode, and we really, really hope you have, and if you would like to tell us about it, you are more than welcome to get in touch. We would love to hear from you. We are on Twitter. Our username is at retro underscore tube. And if you are not a fan of Twitter because let's face it it's a bit of a silly place it's a bit stressful you can it's a bit stressful uh, you can always you. email us <laughs> you can always email us our email address is retrotubepodcast at gmail.com and we will always reply we're always happy to hear from you and I think that's pretty much all that I can think of to say with my mouth uh oh do you have the final word Adam Stewart Leslie <laughs>